It's February 13, 1806, and Boston native Frederick Tudor is standing on the bow of his ship, the Favorite, which has just launched into the Atlantic Ocean. He's embarking on a five-week journey to the Caribbean island of Martinique. With cargo so precious, he's certain it will change the lives of the Martinique people forever. But that will only happen if his cargo can survive the perilous journey south, a journey known for its tropical storms and pirates. But these dangers are not what have Tudor pacing his deck with worry. His concern is the equator, or perhaps to be more accurate, his ship's proximity to it. Because Frederick Tudor's cargo isn't essential weaponry, life-saving medicine, or even precious textiles. He's shipping ice. A year before this excursion, Tudor had a crazy idea. He believed he could make a fortune by selling ice to people in tropical climates. But in the early 19th century, that's no simple task. Refrigeration technology is still decades away from development, but Tudor believes he knows how to effectively transport his delicate cargo. Every winter, Tudor's family harvests ice from a frozen pond in Massachusetts and stores it in their ice house, cutting large pieces of ice, wrapping it in straw, and storing it in a dark, cool place has proven effective in minimizing ice melt when the weather warms. And this allows them to enjoy one of their favorite treats deep into the summer, ice cream. It's a treat he's certain will have global appeal, guaranteeing his success in the ice business. Most think that the 23-year-old Tudor's new venture is a fool's errand, but he persists. So Tudor fills his ship full of ice and sets sail. Once in Martinique, he plans to meet his brother, who has gone ahead to build the necessary ice house. Unfortunately for Tudor, his brother isn't the most reliable business partner. When Tudor arrives, he discovers that his brother never built the ice house, leaving him stuck in Martinique with a shipload of melting ice. But Tudor is undeterred. He contacts a local restaurateur and says, let's make some ice cream. The restaurateur is skeptical, but his curiosity gets the better of him. And just as Tudor predicted, the people of Martinique could not get enough of this new, cool, tasty dessert. In the end, after much of his cargo melted, Tudor lost the equivalent to what would today be worth about $90,000. And sadly, his next several expeditions were even more disastrous. But as new methods for shipping ice were perfected, Tudor was eventually transporting 100,000 tons of ice per year. And suddenly, ice cream became a treat anyone could make regardless of where they lived. By the age of 80, Tudor died with a fortune of $200 million. Today, he's credited with changing the very nature 
of how many cultures eat and drink, along with kickstarting the world's love affair with ice cream. It's an industry now worth $113 billion, with the average American eating 20 pounds or four gallons of ice cream every year. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. If we wanted ice cream, I turned the crank. Nearly 200 different flavors of ice cream have been developed. Delicious flavor your whole family will prefer. Making ice cream was usually a family event. And so the journey of ice cream from farm to family continues. Ice cream is one of the most complex food products you'll ever consume. It's an icy treat that contains all three states of matter at the same time, solids, liquids, and gas. But the path to discovering and perfecting this miraculous dessert began with a simple desire, to keep things cold. They wanted to freeze other substances and Just putting something on ice doesn't freeze it. This is Jerry Quinzio, author of the book of Sugar and Snow, A History of Ice Cream Making. So the trick was, what do you do to make that ice freeze another substance? The answer to that question came in 1558, when an alchemist from Naples named Giambattista della Porta decided to turn his attention to the science of freezing. One of his many experiments was to freeze wine in glasses. And to do that, he mixed saltpeter with ice, and he immersed a container of wine diluted with a bit of water in the pot of ice and saltpeter and managed to make some mixture that was slushy. I like to call them wine slushies, and they became a big hit on banquet tables in that era. Salt makes ice colder by lowering the temperature at which water freezes, almost cold enough to freeze wine. And before long, the success of wine slushies had chefs wondering what other foods might be tastier once frozen. Cooks had long made custards and creams and all sorts of dairy-based desserts. So it's a small step from making a custard to adding a little bit more sugar and freezing that using the new freezing technique, and you have ice cream. Finally, we had real frozen ices and ice creams. In 1768, the first cookbook devoted entirely to ice cream was published in France. Its author said ice treats should have textures like snow, so they're soft and spoonable, as opposed to earlier recipes which said they should be slushy. It was the beginning of an ice cream boom in Europe, and by the early 19th century, some notable American travelers started bringing recipes home to the U.S. And while Frederick Tudor's burgeoning ice trade was increasing ice cream's availability, making it was still a time-consuming 
and strenuous process. To keep the mixture from freezing into a solid block, they had to continuously stir it, a process that became more laborious as the ice cream started to thicken. And while the hard work paid off in a smooth and delicious dessert, it was exhausting. So in 1843, a woman named Nancy Johnson from Pennsylvania invented a new type of ice cream freezer. This new freezer used a crank that, when turned, moved a corresponding paddle that made the mixture easier to stir. This machine was used as a prototype for commercial ice cream makers. And in 1851, a dairy salesman named Jacob Fussell opened the very first ice cream factory in America. He was a Quaker. He was a very ethical person. He sold his ice cream at what he believed was a fair price. Some of the local ice cream makers sold their ice cream at a much higher price, and they wanted Fussell to increase his price to align with theirs. He said, no, no, he was selling his ice cream at a fair price. And because the growing ice trade meant that boats and railroad cars could ship frozen products further, Fussell was able to expand his business and send ice cream across the U.S. So his business was the beginning of a more industrial produced ice cream. It got to the point, really, when street vendors started making ice cream and selling it for a penny. They were called penny licks. Penny licks were small glasses filled with ice cream that customers would lick until they were empty. Soon, penny licks were replaced by a more popular vessel, the ice cream cone. The ice cream cone is another interesting story. And what you often read is that at the 1904 World's Fair, an ice cream vendor ran out of cups for his ice cream. And a waffle maker next to him saw his dilemma, rolled his waffle into a cone shape, and let the ice cream vendor fill it with ice cream. And the ice cream cone was born. Well, it's a nice story. And it might be a true story. We don't really know. What we do know for sure is that the first patents for ice cream cones were issued at the turn of the 20th century. But better production and serving methods weren't the only factors that helped bolster America's love affair with ice cream. One of the biggest boons for the industry occurred quite unexpectedly when the U.S. outlawed alcohol in the 1920s. So, prohibition. It sounds strange, but apparently when saloons closed, people, and often men, went to a soda fountain and had an ice cream instead. And there was actually a little song about dad's not stopping at the bar room anymore. He's stopping at the soda fountain and bringing home a pint of ice cream for the family. By the end of Prohibition, national ice cream consumption had grown by more than 100 million gallons per year. And by the start of World War II, ice cream was so popular in America that, 
as many countries ban the production of ice cream as a way to ration supplies, U.S. officials gave it the designation of an essential food. They realized that ice cream improved morale for soldiers on the front line. The Navy was even outfitted with ice cream equipment so sailors could make their own while at sea. But as the war dragged on, ingredients became harder to find. This forced ice cream manufacturers to substitute corn syrup for sugar and cornstarch for cream. Unfortunately, by the end of the war, manufacturers realized that they could continue to make this cheaper, syrup-sweetened ice cream without hurting sales. Profits soared, but for some, the memory of something better still lingered. Sometimes I wonder if he really realizes how important he was to the industry. This is Judy Harrell. She's referring to Steve Harrell, her ex-husband and current business partner. Steve and Judy run Harrell's Ice Cream in Northampton, Massachusetts. First opened in 1973, Harrell's Ice Cream is known for pioneering the renaissance of the all-natural, fresh, gourmet ice cream trade in the U.S. It's the same ice cream that Steve made with his uncle when he was a kid. The person who really inspired Steve was going to be his great-uncle Raymond, both kind of inventors, crazy mad scientists. And Uncle Raymond didn't like the work of cranking, the hand crank. So when Steve was six or seven years old, he remembered... Uncle Raymond creating and building a contraption that was belt-driven with a motor that would crank the ice cream for him. (laughs) And, you know, it would always come out perfect because it was at the same speed all the time. And I think that when it came down to him wanting to own his own business, he thought about the fun he had making ice cream with his family, knew he had something that was different than was out there currently, and decided to do that. Hand crank machines churn slower than their commercial counterparts, meaning less air is pumped into the mixture, and less air in the mixture results in thicker, creamier ice cream. But Steve knew that if he used a hand crank machine for his business, he'd never produce enough product to turn a profit. The problem was big commercial machines that created low-air ice cream didn't exist. So just like his Uncle Raymond, Steve decided to build one himself. He bought a brand-new White Mountain Freezer commercial version. And the dasher, which is what makes the ice cream turn and it scrapes the ice cream off the wall of the freezing element. So what Steve did is he put a gear reducer on the motor that worked the dasher. So the dasher went slower. And that was revolutionary. The result was super creamy ice cream. And it was a delicious wake-up call for millions of taste buds dulled by the big ice cream manufacturers whose product was full of air, additives, and preservatives. But Steve wasn't done transforming the ice cream industry just yet. 
Steve's an innovator in general, and he also really enjoys playing with his food. So <laughs> what Steve did was he thought, why can't I put Heath Bar inside my ice cream? So he created a method called the mix-in, and nobody had ever conceived of doing anything like that. So if you loved Oreos, which was his second favorite love, <laughs> you could do, you know, put your cookies in the ice cream. There was some debate about who invented cookies and cream ice cream, but Steve was undoubtedly one of the first, if not the first, to make it. And his cookies and cream ice cream was an immediate cult-like success. He opened the store with 32 gallons of ice cream. He went through the 32 gallons within a day. He closed the store, had to hire a bunch of people, bought a walk-in freezer, <laughs> and reopened to these incredibly long lines. And as word spread of his success, Steve's shop caught the eye of other wannabe ice cream entrepreneurs. Steve's homemade ice cream was the mecca for homemade ice cream on the East Coast. This is Ben Cohen, the co-founder of the world-famous Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. I met Jerry in junior high school. We were in the same gym class together. We were the two slowest, fattest kids in the class. We kind of met at the back of the pack, way, way at the back of the pack, running around the track. When Ben's dream of becoming a potter didn't materialize, and Jerry failed to get into med school, they decided to go into business together. Well, we wanted to make the kind of ice cream that we like to eat, and we wanted to make it all natural. We researched ice cream quite a bit, and we learned that the ice cream that people used to make at home on the back porch in the old days was really the best ice cream there is. And this old-style homemade ice cream was just like the ice cream Steve was making. So Ben and Jerry reached out to Steve, who was happy to share his secrets, including how to slow down the dasher to make the perfect ice cream. They were armed with the magic rotation per minute formula and a commitment to natural delicious ingredients. But launching their company was more difficult than either Ben or Jerry expected. Starting a business, especially a small underfunded business, is nothing but challenges. We were sleeping in the back room on top of the freezers at night. It was our entire lives. We didn't do anything except eat, sleep, and work at the shop. But their hard work paid off. Building off the success of Steve's mix-ins, Ben and Jerry focused on creating their own trademark, intensely flavored, big and chunky, whimsical ice cream flavors. It was unlike anything the industry had seen before. When we first came out with cookie dough, we were making chocolate chip cookies in the store and we were making ice cream in the store and the guy who was making the cookies talked to the guy who was making the ice cream and they said, hey, why don't we just stick in some raw dough? And they did it and that created a phenomenon in terms of the sales of that flavor. 
you know, and now cookie dough is pretty much a standard flavor for most any ice cream company. Flagship flavors like Cherry Garcia, Chunky Monkey, and Americone Dream soon follow. Eventually, Ben and Jerry were able to stop sleeping on top of their freezers. Today, Ben and Jerry's is a household name. Last year, they did more than $900 million in sales, making it the most popular ice cream brand in the U.S. But perhaps more impressive than their sales is how they've changed the industry. Ben and Jerry's helped kickstart the premium ice cream wave. They've introduced millions of Americans to better quality ice cream and paved the way for the artisanal ice cream makers who are now taking the industry by storm. But how exactly is artisan ice cream different from most big brand companies? Well, artisan ice cream is a small batch product that's usually made with the most indulgent and high-quality ingredients. When we started making and selling Van Leeuwen ice cream in 2008, there were not a lot of producers, or maybe none, who were making ice cream the way we make ice cream. This is Ben Van Leeuwen, co-founder and CEO of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream. So 18% butterfat, 8% egg yolks, no funny stuff, you know, just milk, cream, sugar, eggs, little bit of sea salt, and then these amazing flavoring ingredients. The idea for Artisan Ice Cream came to Van Leeuwen back in 2003 when he decided to leave school and go abroad. With the money he saved that summer driving an ice cream truck, he spent a year traveling and more importantly, experiencing the local cuisine of cultures all across the globe. So I bought a one-way ticket to Italy and I spent about eight and a half months traveling throughout Europe and Asia with a very small backpack, more like a book bag. I had like one pair of pants, one pair of shorts, like two pairs of socks. As I say this, it sounds cliche. I was affected by how good the food was in Italy. Of course the food's good in Italy. In France and Spain and Thailand and Vietnam and Laos. But these were places where good food was just the default. But I was really excited finding these places where good food was normal, where it was just a part of life. So those experiences really shaped me. But really the core of that was just trying good stuff and being excited by the idea of good food just being accessible and sort of normal. And when Van Leeuwen returned to New York with a passion for premium food, it was the most basic treat that inspired what he did next. It was a warm afternoon and I saw Mr. Softy ice cream truck. And in that moment, the idea came to me. It was a simple idea. Let's build an ice cream truck and let's sell really good ice cream off of that truck. Van Leeuwen recruited his brother and then girlfriend to join his venture. And Van Leeuwen Ice Cream was born. We started with a used 1988 Chevy P30 step van that we bought on eBay for $2,500. And we retrofitted that into the first Van Leeuwen Ice Cream truck. The first Van Leeuwen truck was a lucky find, but sourcing the right ingredients 
took a bit more effort. Their first ice creams were made with Sicilian chocolate, vanilla beans aged in vodka, and strawberries ripened in volcanic soil. They were hopeful that their uber-premium artisanal ice cream would be just what New Yorkers were craving. We had the ice cream truck, and we were ready to go. We were nervous, right? We had just spent $60,000 that we raised building this truck and making some ice cream, and we were finally ready to start generating some revenue. It was a warm and sunny day in June when the Van Leeuwen truck rolled onto Wall Street. Parking was hard to find, so they decided to try Canal Street. But by 2 p.m., they still had not sold a single cone. So this was bad. But at this point, we're freaking out. We're like, okay, this was a stupid idea. You know, the people who said it was a stupid idea were right. So we were like, all right, let's try one more location. I guess before completely giving up. So they threw up a Hail Mary and drove their truck out to Soho in a last-ditch effort to try and make a sale. So we parked on a side street. We start getting set up. And before we've even opened the window, a line starts forming. By the time we open the window, there's 25 people waiting in line. We started scooping ice cream. We started serving customers. People were so interested in who we were as a brand, what we were doing, what we were serving. And we said, wow, this works. By the end of the first year, Van Leeuwen Ice Cream sold more than $400,000 of product. The following year, they hit the $1 million mark. And in 2018, they did over $20 million in sales. Van Leeuwen's success inspired lots of other uber-premium ice cream makers to enter the market. In fact, when grouped together, these small-batch artisanal brands sell more product than Ben & Jerry's, making it the best-selling ice cream in America. But while ice cream quality continues to rise, there's one group of consumers who felt left out in the lurch. Vegans. Whether for ethical or dietary reasons, more and more people are going dairy-free. And while some progress has been made with cocoa butter and nut and oat milks, there's no denying that when you take the dairy out of ice cream, it still tends to taste, well, vegan. It is the delight of the mix-ins and inclusions in a Ben & Jerry's pint that inspired us to make uh, some of the delicious flavors in Brave Robot. This is Ryan Pandia. He's the co-founder and CEO of Perfect Day, the biotech company behind Brave Robot Ice Cream. Ben & Jerry's is a source of inspiration for Pandia, but Perfect Day is transforming ice cream in a way that earlier industry pioneers likely never thought possible. In fact, Perfect Day is not only revolutionizing ice cream, but the entire dairy industry. The milk protein they use is essentially identical to the milk protein found in traditional dairy products, except for one big difference. It doesn't come from an animal. It's grown in a lab. Pandia started his business because, much like his business partner, he was a vegan who loved dairy. We were both 22, 23 years old, Indian-American, bioengineers, went vegan and hated it. Right. And on top of all of that, we had the idea to use uh, precision fermentation to make 
the exact same proteins found in milk in hopes of being able to create a much more scalable dairy supply chain that could be sustainable, that could be kinder, greener, and future-proof. Precision fermentation is a process where scientists inject milk protein DNA into an organism called microflora. Microflora create their own proteins during fermentation, but when they're injected with milk protein DNA, they reprogram themselves to create milk proteins instead. Essentially, what we did is we Googled what is the DNA sequence of milk protein, and then we got it, and then we, we copied it and like pasted it into an email to one of those companies that just creates DNA molecules out of thin air, and they mailed it to us like a week later, and it was like a couple hundred bucks. It really is that, okay, it is that simple, but what is not easy is making it efficient, scalable, low-cost, guaranteed to be safe in all the ways that the regulatory environment and, and our commitment to, you know, ourselves, our employees, our families, our world, all those other pieces take a lot of work. Another challenge for Pandia was convincing consumers his ice cream was as good as traditional dairy options. He knew consumers would be skeptical of real dairy ice cream made without cows, so he went into the field to test his product. We had this ice cream truck. We wanted as many people as possible to try our product and give us feedback. And, you know, we wanted to have these authentic conversations with ice cream lovers and, and people walking by. And it was the weirdest thing because someone would walk by and we're like, hey, do you want a free sample of ice cream? It's lactose-free, it's cholesterol-free, it's vegan, but you'd never know. And they try it and they're like, I don't get it. You just handed me free ice cream. They didn't even realize that anything was different about it. Brave Robot Ice Cream has been a gift to the vegan community. Now available in more than 5,000 stores across the U.S., it matches the ever-elusive mouthfeel and taste of milk-based ice cream. But even more important than taste are the substantial environmental benefits Perfect Day's lab-grown milk proteins provide. In fact, animal-free dairy products like Brave Robot Ice Cream have the potential to reduce dairy industry greenhouse emissions by 97%. You can imagine, as companies start to replace their dairy supply chains with the animal-free version, that, again, has really no difference in terms of functionality, versatility, nutrition. It's just made in a better way. That impact can really be achieved. Perfect Day is creating ice cream and other dairy products that reduce our environmental impact without sacrificing the delicious taste we've come to love. And it's our love of this cool, sweet, creamy treat that's helped spawn disruption across the industry for centuries. Whether it's a trip across the tropics with a boatload of ice or a jerry-rigged ice cream maker, a mix-in recipe of cookies and candy, or lab-grown milk protein, we're grateful for every last spoonful of innovation. Because you scream, we scream. We all scream for ice cream. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies, who believe there's an innovator in all of us. If you'd like to learn more about the guests on today's episode, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>